Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. I have just been to see Her Majesty the Queen, who has invited me to form a government. From this day forward, a new vision will govern our land. Iraq collapsing, Syria collapsing, Yemen collapsing, Libya collapsing and everything else in turmoil. Nothing to do with us. Hey everyone, welcome to Where We Are with Terence Eagle, the podcast that breaks down what happened in the world in the last seven days and how we got here. On today's episode... New York is always the hot side. We've never been in a situation like this. I'm 72 years old and never in my life have I ever been through any kind of event like this. We will always refer to our lives before the pandemic and since the pandemic. So I have with me disaster stress therapist, Dr. Lori Nadell, and the author of the book, The Five Gifts, Discovering Hope, Healing, and Strength When Disaster Strikes. Uh, Dr. Lori, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me as your guest. So you're based in New York, is that right? Uh, yes, I am. I've been based in uh, New York since I opened my practice in uh, 1991, 20, 30 years. So that must be giving you a really unique look at the crisis right now as it hits the U.S., because um, New York is obviously the hot zone right now. New York is always the hot zone. <laughs> <laughs> we had Hurricane Sandy. I, I lost my own home of 20 years to Hurricane Sandy. Uh, we had September 11th. Uh, we yeah. certainly had the financial industry uh, into a huge meltdown in 2008. So New York is kind of the, the epicenter for these uh, mega events. Yeah, I guess I, I didn't really think of it like that. So it's not just um, with the pandemic right now, but New York is kind of like the perennial hot zone. You've mentioned um, Hurricane Sandy, 9-11. So you've counseled people through a lot of disasters. What has it been like counseling people through the pandemic? What's been different about this? Well, the, I think that the main difference with the pandemic is that, for one thing, it, it's not a specific event that has a beginning, a middle, and an end. We kind of know vaguely when and where it started, but it kind of started picking up exponentially in March, but we don't really know when it's going to end, if it's going to come back. Everything is so open-ended and everybody's flying by the seat of their pants. So one of the big issues that comes up for people is uncertainty because life as we knew it has just been yanked away. The, the normal routines that people had, you know, whatever those normal routines are, they've all been kind of yanked away all of a sudden without warning. And that creates a sense of loss. And the reason for this being suddenly yanked away is that there's a killer disease on the loose and that we really have 
no way of knowing how many people are going to die in this pandemic, and it potentially affects every human being on the planet. We've never been in a situation like this. I'm 72 years old, and never in my life have I ever been through um, any kind of event like this. And it's, it's very sobering. And so the magnitude of it and the uncertainty of it are causing people to feel anxious and unsafe. So then is that mostly what you're hearing, what you're hearing from the people you talk to and your patients? Is it mostly this kind of abstract um, terror of this amorphous disease, as you said, and just the uncertainty that comes with that? Or are you hearing from people who are actually on the front lines facing the, the outbreak who either have loved ones who have contracted the virus or they've contracted it themselves or something like that? Well, I mean, it's affecting everybody because I think everybody I know knows somebody who has lost someone or they've lost someone themselves. So it's, you know, it's having a, you know, the, the traumatic grief of, of, of having lost someone you worked with or a relative or um, a friend or a friend of a friend um, is, is pretty universal. A friend of mine was a doctor uh, was desperately trying to save the life of a 26-year-old. Somebody else uh, I know has been going uh, into work in nursing homes and uh, just came down with the uh, coronavirus herself. The deeper issues for, for everybody has to do with survival. The question of economic survival is intertwined with the threat to physical survival. And these are big global issues that affect every person on a visceral, individual, and unique basis. So I know that it says on your website, uh, laurieneedell.com, that uh, you're offering pro bono therapy sessions to anyone that's dealing with like emotional distress right now. Uh, so I'm wondering, like, what are you hearing from your patients right now? And how do you coach them through what sounds like such a hopeless situation? Well, it's never a hopeless situation. In my book, The Five Gifts, one of the approaches that I take in the book is to interview people from other countries around the world and other cultures who have lived and endured hard period, long periods of hardship and long periods of adversity. Here, especially in New York, we expect everything quickly. You know, we expect that we're going to get information immediately. We expect that, you know, we can use an app and we can have food delivered. And when we see something disturbing on our screens, we can just swipe it away or we can change the channel. But when, and I'm talking specifically about people in the United States, when something horrible happens, when there's a catastrophic event of some kind, when there's an actual threat to your physical existence, uh, what we call a life-threatening or life-shattering event, we expect that we're going to just change the channel and the uncomfortable emotions are going to go away. But in fact, it can take three to five years for the uh, mind to digest or what we call metabolize the unthinkable. And we've had many unthinkable events uh, in London. You've had you know, terrorist attacks during the 70s. I spoke to people from my book who grew up in World War II, where there was rationing, where they had to, the children, there's children, they were taken into uh, shelters 
Uh, there have been attacks in uh, most of the major European airports. And these events are absolutely horrifying and paralyzing for people who were going about their normal life and happened to be present when the event occurred. It's almost as terrifying for people who witness these events on TV or online because there is such a thing as vicarious traumatization. So by witnessing these events, we can also experience the helplessness and horror that something like this even happened to somebody on a normal day. Is that because we fear that it could just as easily happen to us? Exactly. You know, it shows us, it shows us our vulnerability as humans. It kind of forces us to go face to face with our mortality. And that's very troubling and very uncomfortable. When it happens to us in real time, we can't change the channel. You know, we can't swipe it away. And it turns out that we are flooded with a cascade of stress hormones. And so we want to make it go away. But if we look at how people in other cultures, we look at how people in England, for example, came together to endure and to support each other during the war, we can learn a tremendous amount. We look at people who've lived with earthquakes and volcanoes and natural catastrophes growing up as children. Their parents gave them the value, which I call a, a gift of humility. And humility is, is the gift that allows us to accept that there are forces greater than we are and that we're not in control of everything. Going back to the Bible and before the Bible, People have survived and people have endured and people have come through uh, some, sometimes generations of plague or war or famine or pestilence. And that in any lifetime, there are cycles of hardship and cycles of pain. There are cycles of prosperity and there are cycles of famine and there are cycles of peace and cycles of war. And that in any human lifetime, we're going to go through a few of these cycles. Everything in nature is a cycle, and this cycle, too, will come to an end, and there will be new life and new growth. Yeah, there's uh, so many interesting things in what you just said that I want to dive into. Um, maybe I'll just start with something you said at the beginning of your thought uh, that I thought was really interesting about how we're living in this digital age of you know swiping through apps and quick delivery, quick access, and that's had an impact on the way that we process grief as well. And it made me wonder when you were mentioning um, counseling people who have survived World War II and people in the 70s who have survived terrorist attacks. I mean, obviously, they weren't living in this digital age of today where you can swipe through apps and swipe through channels. Um, so do you feel like their reaction to grief was different from the way people react to it today? Well, I think they allowed grief in some countries, you know, if, if you lose uh, a family member or somebody, you know, somebody very close to you, um, you're supposed to grieve for a year and uh, people will come and, and, you know, bring you food and bring you soup and make sure that you're not alone and they'll check in with you. And here we have, um, you know, the wake lasts for a few days. Then when that period is over, we're expected to be back at the gym and back at work and being productive. So we don't have very realistic expectations about human nature because mm -hmm. grief takes a long time. And that's why patience is the second of the five gifts. Patience is the gift that lets us understand 
that we could have flashbacks to the pandemic a year from now, two years from now. Something could come up. It could be a smell. It could be a bar of music. All of our memories, our emotional memories, are stored as molecules in the limbic system, which is the part of the brain. They're compacted and they're stored like in a drawer. When we're going through something traumatic, we take our feelings and we shove them in a drawer so that we can keep going and we can survive. But the drawer can fly open years later when we don't expect it. And we can be flooded with this cascade of emotions as if we're reliving the original experience again. So then the patient's part of that, is that just accepting that this isn't going to be resolved quickly um, and that this could be something that stays with you? That's right. Patience is the awareness that the heart doesn't have a timetable. This experience is an imprint. It's like a timestamp that we will always refer to our lives before the pandemic and since the pandemic. Just like uh, here in New York, we have 9-11 as a point of reference where we say before 9-11 and after or since 9-11, because it's a marker in your psychological roadmap uh, through this human journey. And yeah. uh, it will come back. Uh, well, firstly, we never go back. I think it's a really important thing. We never go back to who we were. And we never go back to, quote unquote, normal. Because the nature of life is uncertain. And the nature of life is unpredictable. And we carry that awareness with us into the future when we are able to go back to work or go out to dinner or have, you know, resume our social life with people. We're still going to be moving forward with this new awareness. Yeah. And then um, one thing that makes me wonder about is that, so, like for New Yorkers, um, it's now the epicenter of the outbreak in the U.S. And there's been three times as many deaths as in all of China. Like obviously New Yorkers are going to have a really particular uh, memory and trauma of this pandemic experience. But then on the other side of that, there are many people who are living through this phenomenon, living through this crisis, but it's not afflicting them in nearly the same way as it is affecting others. Um, so I wonder if you thought about for those people who are going to live through the pandemic without carrying the scars of it that other people will carry forwards, do you expect them to experience something like survivor guilt as a result? Well, I know that, you know, as a parent, for example, if your child gets sick, you'll probably feel guilty because you weren't able to prevent it. I think that anybody who survived any kind of a disaster carries a certain amount of guilt. Uh, after Hurricane Sandy, there was a woman who was in one of my uh, programs. This one young mother said that uh, after the storm destroyed their house, her four-year-old daughter asked her, Mommy, why did you let my dolls drown? And there was tremendous rage that her daughter had for a long time. And she felt guilty because she wasn't able to protect her child from this horrible, tragic event. And she wasn't able to prevent it. And of course, there's no way that we can prevent a catastrophe or a natural catastrophe. And you know, what we can control, and, and this is something that we offer to first responders or people who've just lost their home, you know, be aware that there's a tendency to isolate. And uh, right now, especially with social isolation, it's really important to try to stay connected to people. If you live alone, you know, try to have a Skype call or a Zoom call, 
even if you share your meal with somebody, have a little dinner party or, you know, have a, have a Zoom meeting to have lunch, stay connected as much as you can to other people. Talk about it. Talk about what you're feeling because talking is really great medicine. If you can take a news break for 24 hours and just turn off all the news and just do whatever you need to do to relax, just do something that will you know, rejuvenate and refresh your spirit. Uh, that's, those are also things that we can take control of, and that will help us to have more sustainable energy to deal with these survival issues, which are considerable. Yeah. I mean, so obviously it makes a lot of sense that it's important to stay connected in a time like this. And it's very easy to, um, I mean, obviously isolate, but to cut yourself off from from others. But um, I don't know if ever, if other people have experienced that when reaching out to people right now, it's pretty much unavoidable to just talk about the situation we're in, this bizarre circumstance that we're in right now. So we wind up just talking about the pandemic and kind of cycling through our experiences and how there's nothing we can really do about it. So I'm wondering if if that's a concern that as you reach out to people around you, as you reach out to friends and family, you just find yourself talking about this pandemic over and over again without coming to any resolution. Um, well, I, I think with friends especially, it's just important to listen and to say something as simple like, you know, what what do you need just to to kind of be there for somebody and to ask somebody, right, let's, let's just talk about this for like, like five minutes. And then let's talk about something else. Like, you know, where do you want to go on vacation? Uh, when, you know, when they let us out of house arrest and we're able to travel again, or, uh, what are you doing to stay sane? Uh, what are you yeah. watching? Uh, what are you reading? Uh, something that you did someplace that you went uh, pictures, taking pictures when you go out on walks and then sharing pictures that have nothing to do with the news or the or the virus. That can just be a fun thing to do. But I think the most important thing is just to offer to be there and say, yeah, you know, everything kind of sucks right now, but I'm really glad you're in my life. And it, it can just be as simple as that. Yeah. It's funny. Um, I don't know if other people have had this experience as well, but I feel like in some ways it's – um. So like I've been living abroad for years, and I feel like uh, in some ways this pandemic has made me – more connected to my family back home because, um, you know, like under ordinary times I'm over here and like pretty busy and sometimes hard for me to check in. But now that we're all under our own isolations, we set up like a weekly family Zoom, which is something that we've never done before, even though we obviously always had the ability to do so before the pandemic. Yes. And I, I think that uh, like during during the war in England, there was rationing and there was like one cup of flour uh, per family per month. And when people were getting married, they didn't have flour to make cakes. And so they would make cardboard cakes uh, for birthdays, mm. cardboard cakes with cardboard candles. The power of creativity to heal is very important and to share and to have fun. I think that that's really amazing. And we kind of need to distract each other a little bit. Yeah. So um, you've alluded to this a couple of times, but I know that you've gone through your own trauma after Hurricane Sandy. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little about that. Uh, Hurricane Sandy was, uh, it came a year after Hurricane Irene. Well, we're hoping that no one's heading out on the roads right now, but we do have some updates for you. 
In Hurricane Irene, was it, everyone was supposed to evacuate, and it was supposed to be this horrible, you know, nightmare storm. Good morning, everybody. Uh, I want to say a few words about Hurricane Irene. Urge Americans to take it seriously. All indications point to this being a historic hurricane. But it, it really didn't affect most people, and it certainly didn't affect my house, which was on a barrier island, um, a beach town outside of the city. When Hurricane Sandy came, people decided that they evacuated the year before, and so everybody decided to just stay in and put sandbags in front of the door. Within 20 minutes, there were uh, four feet or like one and a half meters of water uh, that just kind of burst in through the seams between the floor and the wall. And there was water that was gurgling up from beneath the floor. If you looked out the window, there was like a four or five foot high lake of glass that was everywhere. We had to hide in the attic as the water was creeping up the stairs. And when the tide uh, when the tide went out, it turned out that during the storm surge, the town's uh, sewer treatment pump had broken. And so everything was contaminated with raw sewage and, and fecal matter. And so uh, the whole island, the, the water supply was contaminated, but the whole island was toxic and people just had to leave. Uh, there was no way that you could live there. There was no electricity. There was no heat. There was no clean water. And uh, it was a disaster zone with no electricity for quite a while. When you lose everything that you've built, you know, in your uh, adult life, so there's an emotionally, there's a huge psychological trauma. You, you lose your way of life. You lose your community. So the other piece of a catastrophe, which I kind of learned the hard way, is the socioeconomic catastrophe. We're seeing this with coronavirus because of millions of people are out of work. You know, restaurants are collapsing. Whole industries, hospitality industry is uh, falling apart. It may or may not come back anytime soon. Um, a lot of those familiar landmarks and businesses won't be there anymore when we start to reopen. Yeah, it's crazy to think about that. Um Okay, so maybe to wrap up on a more positive note, uh, I know that you have a lot of like tips and strategies and exercises for uh, dealing with emotional stress. So I was wondering if we could maybe run through one of those exercises together. Yes, that would be great. So the, the easiest one, the easiest one to remember and the easiest one to do, because it takes a few seconds, is to check in with your body and notice where you're feeling any distress or tension. And just allow your body to kind of give you a sense of what color would help it to feel better. So if, you feeling, if you're feeling blue or if you're feeling yellow, for some people, yellow is a happy color. So they inhale the color of sunshine. Just allow it or imagine that that yellow color is going into your chest or into your stomach or into, your, into the back of your neck and just uh, filling your body with that wonderful, calming, soothing color. And as you exhale, 
you can let go and release of any tension or stress by breathing out a different color. So is the idea then that you, you're going to breathe in like an uplifting color and you breathe out like a nasty color? Yeah, well, for some people, it's different for each person. Um, mm. I had a woman once who, who, who breathed in brown and mm. I was very surprised she's blind. And I said, why would you breathe mm. in brown? And she said that brown was like honey. And she mm. felt that brown was like an amber soothing color. It's your own emotional palette. Cool. I'm going to start practicing that. Thank you. Um, So Dr. Lori, thank you so much for coming on. This is a lot of great tips and hints for how to get through this very strange time. And um, you can find Dr. Lori's book, The Five Gifts on Amazon, Amazon Kindle. Uh, It's definitely a really good read for times like now. All right. And that's our show. Tune in next week for another episode of Where We Are with Terrence Siegel. And stay safe, guys. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.